It's kind of hard, as we begin this tonight, it's kind of hard at times to deal with other religious faiths without it coming across as you're bashing them. And that's not even the point. The point is, if they are in agreement with the scripture, we bless them. If they are in disagreement with the scripture, then we got a problem with that. Because we are talking about people's eternal souls, are we not? It's not a small matter that we're talking about. And we've looked together at the Jehovah Witness. We've looked at, at the Eastern mystic religions. We've looked at uh, the Islamic religion. We've looked at the, uh, what else? We, the, the Mormons, the Latter-day Saints faith. Uh, we've looked at those together and we've seen how they divert from what the scripture says. We've looked at their own writings, their own teachings to see what they said. Now, we're going to spend a couple, three weeks with the, the Roman Catholics. Now, this is probably one that's pretty close to home. I know for some of you this is very close to home because some of you were former Roman Catholics. And some of you may even have family members that are Roman Catholics. And I have dealt with evangelicals who say, I don't know what problem you have with, this is evangelical, not Catholic. They say, I don't know what problem you have with Roman Catholicism. They're just, they're, they're, they're the same as our faith. And I said, and I, you know, I said, are they? I said, well, why aren't you a Roman Catholic then? They are not the same. Now, in saying that, I am not saying that there are not saved people in the Roman Catholic Church. We're dealing with Roman Catholic doctrine, what they say. Everybody got that? Certainly there are born-again people in the Roman Catholic Church. But I'm going to throw this at you too. They cannot go by the teaching of their magistrate or their magisteriums, by by their councils, and even by their tradition, and have found salvation. In other words, by Catholic doctrine, they, did not, they were not saved. If they are saved, again, it's the grace of God, and someone shared with them, someone shared with them about Jesus and a personal faith in Jesus where you put your faith and trust in Him. Those of you who are Roman Catholic or former Roman Catholic, how many of you ever heard about being born again while you were in the Roman Catholic Church? Anybody that's Roman Catholic, you heard about being born again by, through the Roman Catholic Church? Okay. So, from the church is what I'm talking about. Okay? Uh, most of you who are in Roman Catholic faith were, were not even encouraged to carry your Bibles, to read your Bibles. That the instruction that you needed would come through the priest. You'd have to... Here's, here's the main difference between evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Just the main difference here. In Roman Catholicism, the church is the highest point. In Roman Catholicism, the church sets over the Word of God, telling it what it is and, and, and telling the people what it means. In evangelical Christianity, and what I consider to be biblical Christianity, it is the Bible that sits over the church and tells the church what it is and what it teaches. You understand the distinction there? One is the authority of the church, the other is the authority of the scripture. Now there are many who have gone before us that have, that have uh, died for what I just talked to you about. And some of the things we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, can I throw this out? We are a Southern Baptist church, which means we are a branch of Baptist, Baptist church. We are not Protestant. Now, that's not a slam on Protestantism. There's a lot of wonderful Protestant churches that are teaching the Word of God and stuff. But we are not Protestant. We did not come out. The, the, the Baptists never were a part of the Roman Catholic Church. It is a, those who came out of the Roman Catholic Church that, that are the Protestant. But in a generic sense, we're called Protestant too. But we are not Protestant. We are evangelical Christians. A little bit of difference there. Everybody got that? And some of the some of the Protestant churches, you'll notice some of them, some of them still practice have practices that are that are somewhat similar, at least in the ritualistic sense, to the Roman Catholic Church. 
Okay, some of the higher Lutherans, some of the higher Presbyterians still have some of the some of the practice, including for some of them infant baptism, including for some of them sprinkling for baptism. And we're not going to deal with sprinkling tonight, but we'll deal with that in the weeks ahead. But so what we're going to look at tonight is first of all a word that several people have already asked me, Pastor, what does this word mean? Because it was in the outline this morning, and they, and, and they read it, and they said, what does this word mean, and where did it come from? Well, actually, it came from the Scripture. The word is actually used five times in the New Testament. Five times in the New Testament. It is used to speak of those who are cursed or damned. Cursed or damned. Anathema is to pronounce a curse or a damnation upon somebody. Pretty strong word, isn't it? Very strong word. Okay? Now, in, in the New Testament it talks about those who follow Antichrist and stuff, and we use the word in, in a couple of verses and stuff. But the main verse that we're going to look at tonight is found in Galatians chapter 1. So take your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul is going to use this word... And I hope this gives you clarity about what this word means. Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 6. Right? Here's what it says. It says, I marvel that you are turning so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to just say he says, I marvel that you turn so quickly to another gospel. But he's going to, his little qualifying statement. It's not another gospel because there is not another gospel. Do you get his point there? Which is not another because there is only one gospel is the point. Okay? Which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now some of your translations, pervert. What other word do they have there? Distort. Distort. Change. Warp. You can use all those kind of things. Okay? Verse 8 now. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than which we preach to you, let him be anathema. The King, New King James says, accursed. Any other word used there? Accursed. What? Eternally condemned. Okay? Let him be accursed. Anathema. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be anathema or accursed. For for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, to me, I want to to spend just a little bit of time here before we look at the anathemas of of the Catholic Church. I want you to see how quickly things can change in a group of believers. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the churches in a region called the region of Galatia. And how quickly after they have received the truth. That's why he says, I marvel. You've received the truth. You have received the true gospel. It was made clear to you. And not only was it made clear to you, you received it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how quickly you have perverted the gospel. You've changed it to be something that it is not. You've either added to it or you've taken away from it. By the way, classic definition of the two L's that I really have a lot of problem with in the church. And I'll throw this out to you. Legalists add to the gospel. They add other requirements to the gospel in order for you to be saved. 
liberals take away from the gospel. They say, oh, you don't really have to believe in Jesus. You don't have to believe in his resurrection. You don't have to believe in his virgin birth. You know, liberals take away from the gospel. So the two L's you need to stay away from in the church is legalism and liberalism. Okay? You say, what L can we go in? Well, let's go with the L called liberty in Christ. Okay? Liberty in Christ, which means we're in Christ, we live in Christ, we trust, we trust Christ. But I want you to see that, that Paul talks about the fact that how quickly things have changed even in that church. Elsewhere, Paul says, everybody's already left me. Everybody's already left me. Everybody's already gone their own way. And so Paul makes a strong statement here. He pronounces an anathema. And notice what Paul pronounces. Now, this, by the way, this is the only time this word is used to pronounce a curse on somebody like that. The other one describes the curse that they're under. The other time it's used. Here it is used to pronounce a, a curse. Now, the apostle, this is a, he pronounces it a, a curse. Now, this is a pretty strong statement. Does he have the authority to do what he's doing? It's a great question to ask. Does he have the authority to pronounce, to literally pronounce a curse on somebody? And if he does have that authority, what would be the criteria that the apostle says is needful in order for a curse to be pronounced on somebody? Because you live in the world, same world that I live in, right? People say, you don't have any right to judge me. When you talk about somebody, about their sin condition, about coming to Jesus, and about the fact that they are sinners and stuff, and, and the first thing that comes out of my mouth when I talk to people, you don't have any right to judge me. Don't you know the Bible? The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And boy, I love that one because we can go at it for a while. Yes, I do know the Bible. Do you? Let's read on. For with the same criteria that you judge others, you will be judged. Here's what you need to understand as a Christian. You are not judging somebody to share biblical truth. The Bible has already dealt with many issues. You know, and we talked about this before in a lot of the worldview issues that we talked about. What is the stance in, uh, on adultery in, in the scripture? Um, don't answer me, just think about it. What's, what's the stance on adultery in the scripture? What's the stance on premarital sex, extramarital sex in the scripture? Okay. It already says, doesn't it? It's already, it's already said. What's the stance on believing or not believing in Jesus in the Scripture? What's the stance of adding to the Scripture? What's the stance of taking away from the Scripture? We can go right on down that the Scripture's already said. In other words, in many cases when people are offended by what you might share with them concerning what is right and what is holy, it, you don't have to judge them. The Scripture has already declared something. You're not judging to declare what the Scripture already declared. And you see, the thing about it is when we declare the scriptural truth and, it, you know, in, in the world, that's like a blanket being thrown over. You know, it hits who it hits. Now, I'm not one that likes to use, unless and I'm in a debate with another pastor, I'm not one that likes to use a scripture to, to go at like that and stuff. I think we, we teach the word, and wherever it hits, it hits. Okay? So, when Paul the Apostle pronounces an anathema, this strong statement, let them be eternally condemned, let them be accursed, the one criteria that he uses to say you are, let, I mean this is a pronouncement, is if you dare to preach another gospel, if you dare to go out in the world and say, you know what world, you can be saved by such and such and such and such when it's not what the scripture teaches. See how important that is? I hope you see how important that is. That is so crucial. 
There's only one gospel that saves, and that's what Paul says. There's not another. There's only one gospel that saves. So, by default, church, I know we're afraid to say this today because everybody wants to go along and get along. But by default, if a group teaches another gospel, that gospel cannot save. By default, it can't. If there's only one gospel, and that's what Paul says, and it's only that gospel that offers eternal salvation, then any other gospel out there that's offered cannot bring salvation. Yes? My son is Roman Catholic, and he uses this very verse that Paul is speaking because the Roman Catholic Church was the first church. Okay. Way back then, and he is saying, some of you are going off on this other direction, so you are an enemy. So the Catholic Church. They will use this. They got a problem. They got several problems. Okay. And I'll go on that just for a few minutes. Okay. They got a problem. They got a problem with history. The Catholic Church was not in existence when Paul said this. It wasn't, it wasn't until the 4th century that Constantine instituted and, and created the Catholic Church. So, you know, and, and you know, Paul, not, neither Paul nor Peter established a church in Rome. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, Peter had never even been to Rome yet. But the church already existed there. And there's a lot of historical um, liberties that are taken. But the Roman Catholic Church did not exist to the 4th century. History tells us that. Okay? Huh? I've told him that. He says, absolutely not. The first church He's wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry he's wrong. History, history does not bear it out. Plus, some of the things we're going to talk about tonight will show you, not only historically, but theologically, the things that are taught in the Roman Catholic Church are not found in the Bible. They're not even found in the Bible. Now, please understand this. Roman Roman Catholic theology is the Bible plus tradition. So it may not impact them that you might say something's not found in the Bible to them. Because they they hold Scripture plus tradition. But even with that, you also must understand that you are not allowed on your own to to interpret what Scripture says. The Roman Catholics have a priestly system. You cannot understand it except understanding it through the teachings of the church. You are not a priest before God, as the Bible says. You are not a priest before God. You don't have that ability. There is a special class of, of, of clergy. And I could go a long way in this, and maybe we'll do it in the book of... In the book of um, Revelation, when he talks to two of the churches, he uses, a, he uses a phrase which deals with the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans were the ones that taught a hierarchy in the church. And he, Jesus actually condemns them. Okay? I want to tell you something that, that I want you to get. And, 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 and Protestants and Baptists, I don't think, have gotten this completely. There is no such thing as a laity. Everybody got that? You cannot say at one, one, one breath that, that you're a priest before God and with the other breath say that you're a, lay, uh, you're a lay person. There is no such thing as a laity. But yet, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church and we had months when we studied the doctrine of the laity. I don't know what they studied for months. Okay? We don't have, we don't have a hierarchy. The Bible doesn't know of a hierarchy. The Bible does know of callings. That's what Paul calls them. There are callings. There's pastors and there's teachers and there's evangelists and, 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 and those callings and stuff. And we're all a part of the body of Christ. But there, there is no, there's no biblical basis for a pope, for a magisterium, 
for a, 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 a group of cardinals, for the, the bishop, and we go right on down the list. There's a hierarchy there that's not found in the scripture. Okay? But again, remember, when you're talking with someone, you're trying to talk to someone who, who is still in Roman Catholicism, they hold, remember, they hold church tradition at the same level as they hold scripture. And any scripture that we would use as Protestants, they would say, you don't understand, and you can't even understand it, except first of all, it comes to the church. It's kind of one of those catch-22s. Yes? Okay, so some of what he says to me about church tradition is that, for instance, Polycarp, Jerome were there in the first century. Polycarp studied under John the Apostle. Mm-hmm. Jerome studied under him. Their writings are apocryphal or extra traditional. But why would we not look at something that somebody who sat under the Apostle John wrote down? Okay. Boy, you got a good question. I may even get into my thing tonight. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to throw this at you. And, and I, I, it can sound offensive, but I don't want it to sound offensive. Who, are, who is Polycarp, and who are these other guys? Who are the church fathers? Now, here's what I mean by that. Again, the Apostle Paul said, right at the beginning, everybody already left them. I'm not saying that we cannot find valuable information from these guys, but why... I'm going to just make it as plain as I can. Why read these guys when you have the Apostle to read? You see what I'm saying? Why? And these guys, again, historically are not Roman Catholics. But they do talk about the Eucharist. They do talk about things in the Catholic tradition that we know as Protestants take. Right. So what do you do with that? Well, I say, I say I'm going to go back to Galatians and say that many of them have already left them. Okay. So. All right. Let's look at... Let's look... And we're going to have a couple, three weeks with this, guy. So... I probably need to take a time where I answer. Maybe bring your question, send them to me, and we'll, we'll work them. But I want to deal with this matter of anathema tonight, and it, this will deal with some of the some of the traditions and some of the teaching. I gave you an uh, an outline there, um, your your notes, and um, so just to remind you again that the apostle pronounces an anathema for anybody who would dare to teach another gospel. And that is the one thing that he pronounces anathema for. So, let's look at the Roman Catholics and their pronouncements of anathema, which are many, which I've only given you some of. But there are many. These anathemas came from a council called Trent. From a council called Trent. Now, in the 1960s, they had what's called Vatican II. And they will tell you that the Vatican II made Roman Catholicism a kindler, gentler. But the last statement from those who gathered at Vatican II was that Vatican II confirms everything that the Council of Trent has already said. By the way, they have to. Why? Because if they say that the Council of Trent was wrong and it's part of church tradition, then they're saying that their, their infallible church was wrong. Okay, But in their own writings, they affirm the Council of Trent. So out of the Council of Trent, which is the, the term where we get the term magisterium, where the, where the scholars met and some of the leaders of the church met, we have these, these things. And let's go over these uh, tonight together. I'm not going to read this whole thing. just going to touch on each one of those. But if someone's going to pronounce damnation to you, if someone was going to curse you eternally, 
I mean, that that's pretty important, you know. And if a church has the authority to pronounce those curses on you, then that, that ought to be something that we ought to um, look at very seriously. We already said we believe the apostle had that, that authority. We, said, we saw the criteria why, which he said though, that anathemas. Now if the church has that authority, we ought to be looking at it. And by the way, let me say to you, anybody in here who is not Roman Catholic, and you'll see this in a minute, if you are not Roman Catholic, you have been anathematized by the church. You have been. So that means you have been eternally condemned by the church. So let's look at what they say. First thing, do you believe that the Bible is complete without the apocryphal books? The Bible that you hold in your laps do not contain the apocryphal books. Unless you have a Roman Catholic Bible. The apocryphal books are the books that are written in between the Old Testament period and the New Testament period. Okay, They talk about some of the history that goes on there. Uh, the Maccabees are written in there. It's not that they're not good books. It's not even not they're, that they're not true. It, we do not hold them to be uh, inspired the same way we do other scriptures. Okay, But the Roman Catholic Church does. But they carry this a little bit further. And, and in the long thing here that you see here, as they meet, and they, you have the list of books that are, that are written there. And that's written kind of in the Old English. So, so some of those word names look uh, different than yours. But you can, here's what you can know. All of those written there are what we have in our scripture, plus the apocryphal books, which are not found in your Bible. But here's what they say. They hold all these books, go down to almost the last, well, it actually is the last uh, sentence. If anyone receive not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition and knowingly and deliberately condemn the traditions aforesaid, let them be anathema. So if you do not hold that, that to what the Roman Catholic Church considers to be canon, the Roman Catholic Church eternally condemns you. It's a pretty strong statement. That's why, that's why I began with trying to help you understand what the word anathema meant. Because if you do not hold them, they say that you are eternally cursed. You are eternally damned. And there's nothing you can do about that. Let's read on. And we'll go through these pretty quickly. Do you believe that salvation is by grace through faith? And not works, as stated in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Do you believe that? Okay. Council of Trent. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that he said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. You understand the difference here? We would clearly say, I think with, with James, we would say that our, work, our works demonstrate that we have faith. In other words, we have faith and our works follow them. Clearly here, the Council of Trent says that if you say that, if, they are, if you say that they are just the result and not the cause of salvation, then you are eternally cursed. Okay? So... So a Roman Catholic would tell you in a very brief thing, it is faith plus works that leads to salvation. Faith plus works. Where an evangelical Christian would say, it is faith alone. Faith alone, by the grace of God, that we are saved. But that faith, saving faith, always produces works. There's always real evidence 
when someone is born again. Everybody got the difference there? This is, this, again, this is one of those things I say to you. This is a huge thing. We have forebears who died for this. Because, because they could not buy. And, and clearly, Paul makes this so clear. That we are saved by grace through faith. And, and, and uh, Ephesians 2.89 makes it really clear. That you are saved by grace through faith. And not by what? He just says it straight. And not by works. Lest any man should boast. Jen. I'm just going to say that one of the things that keeps coming out is we need to help people understand what faith is because that's where some of these prosperity things have gone on. It's not my faith even, but it's the faith in Christ. It's where I place my faith. And that helps take away the works thing because otherwise right. it wasn't sufficient. And I would take it even further than that. I would say any faith that we have is also a gift of God. Yeah. You know, it's not something conjured up within us. It's God's work within us that brings us to that place where we can respond to Him. Would you? Yeah. Otherwise, it's, it, it, we benefit from that. Okay. So, how you're going to respond to Him, to me, is where the big question is in all this this salvation thing. Because I still believe that people can respond negatively to the call of God. But I do believe when God works in someone's life, He also gives them the faith to respond to them. And he can, and they can respond positively, or they can respond negatively. Now, I have brothers in, who are Calvinistic, strong Calvinistic brothers that don't believe what I just said to you. They believe if, if God calls you, you're going to be saved. We differ on that a little bit, but but we don't differ on the fact that that, that the work of salvation is solely the work of God, and even the response to Him is because He enables us to respond to Him. Everybody got that? So, okay, let's move on. If we can. (laughs) Alright, the next one. Do you believe that only those who believe should be baptized? As was done in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 18. And therefore disagree with the the Catholic Church's doctrine of infant baptism. Do you believe believe, that basically the question is, do you believe in believer's baptism? Only those who have responded to God should be baptized. Matter of fact, here's one of those things where I would say, please show me in the Bible where anybody anybody was baptized apart from belief. Show me in the Bible anywhere where infant baptism takes place. Now I do know in the book of Acts when the jailer and his family were baptized my Roman Catholic friends will tell me that was his whole family, even the babies and stuff. You know. Uh, but nowhere in the scripture does it teach infant baptism. Nowhere does it teach in the, in the scripture that you that uh, that someone who has not also belief and baptism always go together. Is what I'm saying. But belief always precedes baptism. The, our churches believe that baptism is an ordinance of the church. The same way we believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church. Now, what does that mean? It means that baptism is not for those who will be saved. Baptism is not a part of being saved, but baptism is because we have been saved. In the same way we take the Lord's Supper, we share the Lord's Supper, because not because it brings us to God, not because it bestows grace upon us, but because we have been brought to God and the grace of God is upon us. By the way, which reminds me to, to, to tell you evangelicals, to remind you evangelicals, that baptism is not the doorway into the church. Jesus is the doorway into the church. Baptism is an ordinance of those who are already a part of the family of God. So, 
What does the Council of Trent say about this? It says, If anyone saith that in the Roman church, which is the mother and the mistress of all churches, there is no true doctrine concerning the sacrament of baptism, let him be anathema. Now maybe you saw a word there that we don't use. And that word, remember I said we use the word ordinances. The Roman Catholic Church and even some, some of the higher uh, Protestant churches will still use the term sacrament. Basically, here's what sacrament means. It means by doing whatever you're doing, grace is bestowed upon you. In other words, there's grace in the act of doing it. Including for the Roman Catholic, part of the salvation grace that that comes is through the sacrament of baptism. And, by the way, Roman Catholics have several sacraments that are included in this. And we'll talk about a couple of those tonight. But, But, again, the difference between what you and I call an ordinance... We do not believe that grace is bestowed in baptism. We do not believe that baptism is a part of salvation. We do not believe that, 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 that grace is bestowed in taking the Lord's Supper and taking the bread and taking, and taking the cup. We do not believe that grace is bestowed. We do not believe any saving grace is found in those things. We take those things because we are saved, not to get saved. But when you teach a sacrament, you're teaching that, that act actually bestows or brings salvation into the person who takes it. Which includes infant baptism. So you take your baby and you baptize them as an infant and what you're saying to to them is that they have received the sacrament of baptism which guarantees for your baby that if they should pass that they would gain entrance into heaven because they have completed that sacrament. Anybody see that? We do not, you've noticed, we do not baptize babies here. Some of them, well, they can't hold their water in the Baptist church. I mean, they can't hold their breath under water. But, uh, no, we don't baptize babies. Why? We do, we do what we do. We do a, a dedication of the, of the babies, a dedication of the parents, to encourage the parents to raise that child up in the way of the Lord, to commit as a church that we'll be a part of that. But again, when it comes to baptism, we believe baptism is in Scripture is strictly taught as what we call believer's baptism. That it is an act of someone who's responded to God. It's not an act that, 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 that's done to somebody that brings them into, into faith in God. The big difference there. Okay? Again, I challenge you, you know, when you, you challenge uh, uh, those of you who are dealing with family members or friends that are in Roman Catholicism, this is, they cannot find one scripture. But they can find, I'm just going to keep throwing this to you, they can find church tradition. And that's what they will use because, again, I remind you, they hold church, church tradition to the same level as they hold scripture. And in many cases, they would tell you that church tradition actually clarifies scripture where, where scripture seems to be... Um, Obscure. I look at it, I don't see any obscurity, but, but you know, so, by the way, one of, got that thing. One of the influences, one of the influence of the, one of the influences of the church, which you go not only through the Roman Catholic Church and, and through, through the translations of the scriptures, but also into the Anglican Church, which didn't leave the, the Catholic Church very much and stuff, in some of the translations, some of the scriptures that we have, including, uh, the, the, King James Version, including the one before that, which is the, starts with a G, Tony just blanked out. Geneva, thank you, David. The Geneva Bible, and then, and then you go on down to, to even some of our more modern translations, uh, they will use the word baptism. Right? How many of you ever heard the word baptism? You're Baptist. How many of you ever heard the word baptism? Okay? 
Do you, here's what you need to understand. There is no English word for baptism. There is no English word except that the one that was created. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. I mean, that's the Greek word, baptizo. So what did the translators do? They did what's called, they, didn't, they did not translate it, in other words, tell you what that Greek word meant in English. They did what's called transliteration. They took a Greek word and they turned it into an English word and then the church could determine what that word meant. So the church could say we can sprinkle or we can, we can pour or we can immerse. But the word baptizo in the Greek means, has two meanings. Baptizo in the Greek has two meanings. The first meaning is immerse. Always immerse. Never sprinkle. Never pour. It is always immerse. Always. Some of our people who come from different, even some of the prostitutes who were not immersed say, well, do I have to be rebaptized? And, you know, I don't want to be smirky, but sometimes I want to say to them, no, you just need to be baptized right the first time. Okay? So, it's always immersed. The second thing, the second word the term baptizo is used for is in connection with the Holy Spirit. And it, and it means, it means that it is what we use the term the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It, simply means this, that he identifies us with. In a very real sense, even water baptism is, is that identifier. I'm identifying myself with Christ through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But the term translated from the original language to the English is always immersed or identified. It's never, baptism is not, it's a created English word is what I'm telling you. Yes? When I left the formal church to become a, Christ, a, a born-again Christian, I was so steeply uh, inter- thought, or I was so steeply trained that infant baptism was an absolute necessity, and in the Bible, that I just kept on telling my new Christian friends, oh yes, it's a, you know, it's got to be in the Bible, it's got to be, it's the, it's, the, it's the right thing to do. Until I went to this one church, it was a new church, and it was the old-fashioned kind where they had a wall of tracks on the, on uh-huh. the side, and the one, of us, one of them said, what the Bible has to say about infant baptism, and I thought, hooray, I'm going to take a whole bunch of them and give them to my, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> so I took them, and guess what, I opened it up, and it was blank inside. Oh, it was blank. Let's carry on with the baptism thing. All right. So, um, the second part of the baptism. Do you agree with Paul that baptism is not part of the gospel, and therefore not required for salvation? And if you read First Corinthians chapter one, verse seventeen, you'll see that. If you and if you read First Corinthians chapter fifteen, one through five, where he talks about the gospel that saves, baptism is not mentioned there either. Okay. All right, but here's what the Council of Trent says. It says, if anyone said that baptism is free, that it is not necessary unto salvation, let them be anathema. So if you say that baptism is not necessary for salvation, you are eternally cursed by the Roman church. Okay, do you believe, we go on in baptism, do you believe the Bible when it says that we must be able to believe and repent before we are baptized? Okay, so we have infant baptism, we have baptism for salvation. Now, this matter of believer's baptism. Okay, 
And here's what the Council of Trent says about that. He says, If anyone saith that little children, for they have not actual faith, are not after having received baptism to be reckoned amongst the faithful, and that for this cause they are to be rebaptized when when they have attained years of, of discretion, or that it is better that the baptism of such be omitted, than that, uh, than that, while not believing by their own act, they should they should be baptized in the faith alone of the church. Now, I just really butchered reading that. So, so, but I hope you read it. And the point, there's two points here. First of all, they're saying if anyone says that a little child needs to be rebaptized, how many of you have ever heard of Anabaptists? Anabaptists were not a church on a corner somewhere with a first Anabaptist association. Anabaptists were a group. And there were many groups, by, by the way. And what they had taught, and many of them, were, many of them were, were put to death by the Roman Catholic Church for what they taught. And what they taught was, just what it says right here. They taught that baptism was required after salvation. They taught believers baptism. They rejected the infant baptism of the Roman Church and told people that if they were going to be biblically baptized, they must follow Jesus in believers' baptism. The word Anabaptist is rebaptizers. But it is rebaptizers. Okay? So they condemn anybody who says that a child must be rebaptized by an act an act after they have come to faith. And to say that what happened, and the second part, to say that what happened when they were infant was not sufficient for their salvation, again, they condemn that person with anathema. I have been anathematized tonight five times. Okay? I mean, there there needs to be some, I I just want to say this and and just move on. There needs to be some honesty here. If you're going to anathem, if you're going to damn me, then do it. Don't ignore what your own councils and your magisteriums have said, and act like I'm a I'm, I'm an accepted brother because I'm not an accepted brother in the Roman Catholic Church. I teach doctrine that's contrary to the, and I do it knowingly. And I, I follow in the steps of those who've gone before us and said, you know, before I bow my knee to Rome, I will shed my blood for the, for the cause of Christ. And we've had many that have gone before us to do that. This is not a small thing. And it is quite irritating to me. And, and I don't know where you're at in all this. It's fine. You know, whatever you want to do. Here's what I say. Whatever you want to believe, you believe. I'm not going to get an argument. If you choose to believe something, then you believe that, okay? You're, you're grown, grown people. You can believe what you want to believe. But let's have a little honesty and integrity here, okay? And we have, we have even some of our leaders in our own denomination that say there's no difference between... I've had them tell me, Tony, there's no difference. I've had them tell me, you can, you can dismiss the Council of Trent. I said, you can do that to your own peril, but the Roman Catholics have not done that. I probably had more people mad at me as a Southern Baptist pastor for talking about Catholicism than any other issue. It's, it's amazing the deception that has taken place. If you believe in Roman Catholicism, then go to a Roman Catholic church. We're not Roman Catholic here. We're not. And we do not hold to their doctrine because I believe their doctrines are apostate. I believe they're a perversion of the gospel before I even get to the rest of them. And I believe they will lead people away from Christ rather than to Christ.
that's what I believe. If I believe different, then I wouldn't be married to this lovely lady back here. I'd have a high collar on right now. All right, let's go on. That's a baptism. Next thing, D on your outline says, Do you deny that Christ, boy, complete in body, blood, soul, and divinity are present in the Eucharist? Now there's another term. Some of you have used it. The Eucharist. That's a term that's used to describe in the higher churches, Roman Catholic, and even the higher churches, and in some writings which have been translated by the church to read that way, by the way, okay, uh, that term is used there, to, to describe what we call the host and the cup. Now, we don't call it the host. We, call, we take a piece of bread and we have the cup and stuff. But the Roman Catholic, you'll, you'll see it's, a, it's the host. It's the host. Okay? And you don't touch the host. Actually, it is served to you. The, the, the Catholic priest, after he has prayed over it, he will, he will lay that on your tongue. And you don't bite it because you're not going to bite the body of Jesus Christ. It dissolves on your tongue. And today, most Catholics do not, except in some of the more uh, traditional Catholics, churches, they don't even take the cup anymore. They take the host. They don't even share the cup anymore. Okay? So, here's what they say. If you say, or do you deny that, do you deny when we take the Lord's Supper that that is actually the complete body, blood, and soul, and divinity are present in the elements of the Lord's Supper? Okay? Do you believe that they actually turn into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ? Not only his body and his blood, but his soul and his deity. That's what the Eucharist is. Here's what the count if you don't believe that, which by the way your pastor doesn't believe that, we don't do that when we take the Lord's Supper. Okay, here's what the, what the Council of Trent says. If anyone deny it, that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and the blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but saith that he is only therein as a sign or in a figure or virtue, let them be anathema. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. How does the body, the blood, the the soul, and the divinity of Jesus Christ get into a wafer that's made in some company somewhere? And in a bottle of wine. You say, boy, you are being blasphemous tonight. No, I'm just telling you to think a little bit. How does this happen? And yet you notice, if you don't believe that it happened, that you have been accursed by the Roman church. So we read on, okay? And we come to another word. To deny, or do you deny the doctrine of transubstantiation? Most Christians say, I don't even know what it means. How can I deny it? Okay? The doctrine of transubstantiation, since it is not taught in the Scripture. Okay? What is the doctrine of transubstantiation? Very briefly, very quickly. The priest who has been authorized to do this, prays over the host and the cup. In that instance, something mysterious happens. In that instance, what happens is that the host, which again I told you was was made in a company somewhere, and the wine turn into the literal body, blood, spirit, and and what's the, the fourth thing? Deity of Jesus Christ. They are taking... See, when you, when you talk to a Roman Catholic, you say, have you received Jesus under yourself? They'll say, well, yeah. But they don't mean it in the evangelical sense. 
What they mean is that every week when they go and they kneel before the altar and the priest puts the host upon their tongue, they are, and that's what, receive Jesus. Receive Jesus. They have received Jesus that way. Okay? So, the priests have been endowed with the authority to pray over these elements and they turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now you say, where do they get that from? The Gospel of John is, a, is, a, is one of their favorite scriptures here. When Jesus met with the disciples and said, this bread is my body and this wine is my blood. Okay? And they say, see... Again, I would say, they would say, see, Jesus even said this bread turned into his body and the wine turned into the blood. But Jesus was also called a rock, but we don't consider him to be a rock. A lot of word pictures that are used there. And talk about a literal transformation into those things. Especially with Jesus sitting right there with them. David. It's uh, where the term focus focus comes from. Uh, have you ever heard that? Like it's magic, focus focus. Because uh, they... For the 60s, they did their masses in Latin. So whenever the priest was actually praying over, in Latin, it actually sounds like the words he say sound like hocus pocus. So that's where that term comes from. Hmm. It magically turned into Jesus. And I've talked to my Catholic friends before, and it almost seems like they're candles. In a sense, they're actually eating Jesus. That freaks me out. It, it, it's quite a, it's quite, well, and again, transubstantiation was a big thing that, again, our forebears said, we can't buy that. They said, we can't buy that. Well, let's, what's the Council of Trent say about this? It says, if anyone say that in the sacred and holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and the wine remains conjointly with the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and denieth that the wonderful and singular conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body, and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, the species only of... Of the blood, the species only of the bread and the wine remaining, which converse, conversion indeed, the, which conversion indeed the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation, let them be anathema. You deny it, then you are cursed. And we're, boy, we're over time. Do you need to leave? Huh? I can't get it warmer, no. Uh, we can, I don't know if we can turn that, turn them down, but, um, Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. What I'm going to do because time is, is running out. I'm going to do. I'm going to finish this up, and then we'll catch up with the rest next week. I don't want to keep you for a while longer. There's so much more. Okay. All right. The next question before we go, we'll stop here at D and not go on to E. Do you believe that that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the only sacrifice that will be offered for the forgiveness of sins? In other words, do you believe when the Bible says once and for all? Do you believe when Jesus said it is finished? There is no longer any sacrifice. And therefore deny that we receive forgiveness of sin by taking the Eucharist. A part of the Eucharist is a a ceremony in the Catholic Church which is called the Mass. Okay, The Mass is a continual sacrifice on the altars of the Church of Jesus. It is His body. It is His blood. Maybe you pulled up behind someone who's a Roman Catholic and maybe you saw a bumper sticker that says, The Matthew, excuse me, the Mass continues. It's a, very, it's a distinction between, between, again, the evangelical Christians and the Roman Catholic Church. We do not believe that we don't have, we use a term, but we really don't have an altar here at the church. We have steps at the front. An altar is a place of sacrifice. And the final altar before men and God, or between men and God, was at Calvary. 
was at Calvary. Alright? So, if you, if you, you believe that, the, that, that it is ceased, here's what he says. If anyone saith, either that the principal fruit or the, of the most holy Eucharist is the remission of sin, or that others' effects do not result therefrom, let them be anathema. Okay? So, the, if you deny the effect of the Eucharist as a part of salvation then let, let them be accursed. And the last thing tonight. Do you believe that we should not worship the bread of the Eucharist as if it were Christ completely? In an act of worship, what does the Council of Trent say? If anyone saith that in the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist, Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is, is not to be adored with worship, even external of uh, Latria, as, as is con- as, and is consequently neither to be venerated with a special festive salt, salt, salt I can't say it. thank you <laughs> nor be solemnly borne about in, in processions according to the laudable and the universal right and custom of the Holy Church or is not to be proposed publicly to the people to be adored and that the adorers thereof are idolaters let him be anathema and by the way, if you if you believe in transubstantiation and, and the Eucharist as a Roman Catholic Church, it would make sense that you would worship it. It is Jesus. But again, we don't worship the Lord's Supper table. We don't worship the elements that are in the Lord's Supper. Okay. I'm going to close with this thought because we're up, we're waiting on past time, and I apologize for for being past time. But but let me just close with this thought. Paul, in Galatians, as we began, talked about what would anathematize somebody. What the Bible says brings an eternal curse. And he says one thing. If you pervert the gospel, if you offer another gospel, let them be accursed. Now we've looked at several right now where the Roman Catholic Church has offered an anathema on those who do not, do not believe in their traditions and their rituals, including infant baptism, including grace being bestowed by the taking of the Lord's Supper, what they would call the Eucharist, by tra- uh, transubstantiation, infant baptism. I mean, go right on the, down the line. If you are a Bible-believing Christian tonight, you need to understand that from the perspective of the Roman Church... You are anathematized. You are a curse. By their own words. By their own teaching. I didn't write these things from the Council of Trent. I'm sharing them with you. It's important for us to know this. There is a distinction and there is a difference. And I would say to you that many Roman Catholics don't even know these things. Just like many Baptists don't seem to know what they believe either. Okay? It's good to read. It's good to know. It's let them, good to let them speak for herself. And we're going to pick up there next week because our time, our time is up. All right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. And thank you for the grace that you, that you show us every day. Thank you for the, the matchless grace that brought about our salvation. And Father, let us be a people who, who continually and, and have just a, such a desire just to share what your scripture says. And Father, may we pray for those who are, who are adding to. May we pray that, that you would speak to their hearts. May we pray that those who, who don't even know any better, who have gone in a direction that's contrary to you, Father, that, that you would open their eyes and let them see. Father, we confess to you that this is not a competition. It's not a we're better than them or more holy than them. But it's so important that your church be biblical. So we pray. 
for you to move among the people, to touch hearts, to change lives. Thank you for loving us. Help us to walk in your grace and help us to be ready to give a reason to anybody who asks us for the hope that we found in Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen.